0: I want to pray for us and then uh, we're going to jump in. Father, I want to thank you that we are all of your people and that together we are one body. And Father, I, I'm asking, I'm pleading, I, 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 I have been praying leading up to this morning that you would help us to see with your eyes the world around us. That you would help us to feel what you feel in response to what you see. Father, help us to have a greater picture that as we're sitting here in this chapel at the University of Northwestern, that we're not just sitting here going through the motions, listening to some guy talk. That, but that this is a, a moment in a period in our life, in our faith, that could be a stake that is set in the ground, that could change a trajectory that we're living in right now, that it could change and alter our focus in such a way. That we would leave here differently, Lord. Not by anything that I can do. Not by anything that I can say. But Lord, by the work of your spirit. So Lord, by your grace, give us a centering focus on the person and the work of Jesus Christ. God, by your grace, help us to have a community and kingdom perspective. And Lord, by your grace, may we be changed today. We ask this in Jesus' name. All God's people said. Amen. So, uh, how many of you were in church yesterday morning? A lot of you guys, okay? Awesome? Some hands go up, so we're, we're quite sure. Don't worry, we're not taking tally, we're not going like, to come after you or anything like that. Um, how many of your churches, th- this is, I'm not trying to nitpick or anything, how many of your churches said that today is the International Day of Prayer for the Persecuted Church? Just a couple? Okay. A few of you guys, awesome. Okay, if not, that's okay. I'm not saying that that's wrong or whatever, but just... Uh, Uh, Typically the first Sunday uh, of the month of November for for decades has been a day set aside titled the International Day of Prayer for the Persecuted Church. Just like how in our country on the first Thursday of May is the the National Day of Prayer uh, for the United States. And this idea, this is a, a day set aside to support those in the global body of Christ who really suffer for their faith in some unique ways. Now, to be sure, persecution comes in all shapes, forms, and sizes. And really, it could be concisely defined as any hostility experienced from the world as a result of one's identification as a Christian. So this could be from verbal harassment to hostile feelings to systems that are created to attitudes and actions. Christians in areas with severe religious restrictions pay a heavy price for their faith. And so praying for the persecuted, uh, just to be honest with you, this is a growing area in my life, one that that I, I don't think we live with the awareness of most days, uh, if you're like me, but it's something that I have been growing and leaning into, and I want to invite us as a community of God's people to grow and lean into it together this week, not for a day, but as a lifestyle to be cultivated. And so I want to invite you, uh, in your copies of the scripture, whether that's on your phone, whether that's an old caveman hard copy like this one with paper and pages, turn to Acts chapter 4. And I know you all got access to it. So Acts chapter 4. And we're going to look at verses 23 through 31. And we're just going to look at the reality, the reality of persecution, the fact that it is real, that it does exist, to give it some specificity, some, that, that it's real, that it's dynamic, but more importantly, look at the response that we see from the very beginning and the earliest stages of the birth of the church. And this is something that's not just a, a describing what, what, what we're supposed to do as followers of Christ in response to the reality of persecution. I believe this is the, what the word of God prescribes, what is laid out for us to do to follow in his footsteps. And so, uh, so we're going we're gonna to dive into the moment, but just as you're there, um, I just wanted to say this right off from the get-go, that prayer is our most powerful response to persecution. The prayer is not just part of the battle, it is the battle. And we're going to see that in this text, and I just want to say, just to paint a picture of the reality of persecution in our day, that the need is great, that 75% of the world's population live in areas with severe religious restrictions. And, and primarily, as, it, as that refers to Christianity, are those areas, those nations that are in the 1040 window. And uh, every year, one of the leading organizations that works with persecuted Christians, Open Door USA, develops a world watch list of the top 50 most dangerous countries to live in as a Christian. Here's some of the statistics that they've put out this last year. That 215 million Christians experience high levels of persecution in the countries on the world watch list. This represents 1 in 12 Christians worldwide, making Christianity the most persecuted religious group in the world. Each month, okay, we just started a new month, It's so only the four days in, but each month, so by the end of this month, 255 Christians are killed for the faith, 104 are abducted, 180 Christian women are raped, sexually harassed, or forced into marriage, 66 churches are attacked, 160 Christians are detained without trial and imprisoned. Here's another stat from a leading organization that seeks to plant churches among these areas that are most dangerous to live as a Christian. The Timothy Initiative says the average smartphone user checks their phone 150 times each day. That's once every six minutes. Some of you are doing that right now as I'm talking. And maybe you're not looking at your scripture. But if you're looking at your phone, listen to this. Every six minutes, a Christian is martyred for their faith in Christ. So when you look at your phone today, think of that. Remember and pray And remember that Christians, beloved, our family members in the faith are being persecuted every day all over the world. And one last stat, some of you may know this well, but there have been more Christians that have been martyred for their faith in the last 100 years than the last 1,900 years of the history of church combined. So what you need to recognize is there's a trajectory of an increase of persecution. It's not not decreasing. And so we may feel helpless, confused, angry, even guilty when we're presented with these realities, but we play, you and I play a critical role in supporting persecuted members of Christ's body. We read that in 1 Corinthians 12, 26, if one member of the body suffers, all suffer together. Hebrews thirteen three: remember those who are in prison as though, as though in prison with them, for you are mistreated. And Remember those who are also mistreated since you also are in the body. I don't know if this has ever happened to you, but how many of you have ever just been maybe going somewhere and you're, you're focused on something else and you like maybe bump into something, you hit your knee and you don't really recognize it, but then someone's like, hey dude, you're bleeding. And then you look down and there's like blood running down your leg, you're like, oh, oh. And then all of a sudden the pain comes. does that ever happen? Okay, so you know what that's like? Here, I think this is, this is to paint a picture for us to see the reality that in a more serious way, I know it's a lighthearted analogy, but to recognize We have members of the body bleeding, hurting, and in desperate need. And so to ask the Lord this morning to help you see what he sees so that you would feel what he feels and so that you would respond how he is responding. And so we're called to stand in unwavering prayer for the sake of our brothers and sisters who are crying out for comfort, support, and strength. And so as we look at this text for the next uh, 20 minutes or so, We're going to see both the reality of persecution and the response of the early church. So uh, look with me here. uh, It says, verse 23. It says, when they were released, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and the elders had said to them. Okay, we'll stop real quick. I know just one verse in, right? Backstory. So if you were to read back in Acts chapter 3, we have Peter John going to the temple at the hour of prayer. Okay, so here they're devoted. They're on the way to a prayer meeting, and they see a man who, uh, by one of the gates, who was lame from birth, and he was crying out. And when he saw Peter and John, he was asking for alms. He's asking for money, and and uh, and, P- and Peter says, "I don't have any silver or gold for what I do have. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk." He grabs his hand. It says that his ankles and everything were were strengthened. He stands up. He's healed, and he's leaping and praising God. And he joins Peter and John into the prayer meeting. Okay, um, that causes a commotion. That drew some attention. And then the religious leaders came by like, hey, what's going on? And then they were like, "How? Wh- what happened here? And they, they tell the story, and they say, you know what? It wasn't because of our power or piety this man was healed. It was because of G- the, in the name of Jesus Christ. And it says that after that, they were greatly annoyed but that they were greatly annoyed and then and through Peter being filled with the spirit and then testifying and giving bold uh, declaration and witness to, to the living testimony of Jesus Christ dying and rising again from the dead, it says that they looked at them in Acts 4.13 and that they were astonished. Even though they were common and uneducated men, they could tell that they had been with Jesus. So they detained them overnight and then they basically said, stop doing that, stop preaching. And they, did, they had an undeniable sign, but they said, don't do that. And they said, hey, whether we listen to, to God or to you, we can't help but to, th- but to testify to witness to what we've seen and heard. So then they're released from being detained overnight, and this is now they approach and go to their friends. By the way, many who are persecuted don't have a support system to return to. And so this idea on a, and, and then here's the thing, on a brief side note, just an overview, the book of Acts is true in the, all, of, all of the, uh, uh, really, of Christianity. Um, uh, you know, I like, there's a lot of church growth formulas out there, but if I could come up with one from the Bible, it's called the three Ps of church growth. It's prayer, preaching, persecution. Prayer, uh, and then persecution leads back into prayer. Prayer gives the boldness to preach, and then that preaching invites more persecution. Then back to prayer, preaching. We see that happen all throughout Acts. Acts one and two, what were they doing? They were praying, and then we said, uh, and then, then they, and then that led to preaching. And then there were kind of this disgruntled religious leaders. In Acts three, they go back to praying. Then they start preaching. Then invites more persecution. Then after the persecution, they're back into the per- place of prayer. And so we see this all throughout Acts. We see this in this text. But as we look at this reality of persecution, I want us to see the response of persecution. We see how the early church responded. It says this in verse 24. And when they heard it, they lifted their voices, what? You with me? Verse 24. They lifted their voices together. Thank you. Together to God. This idea, how do you respond when you first hear about Persecution. Well, here the church immediately enters into the place of prayer. They seem to spontaneously combust into passionate, united corporate prayer. They lifted their voices together. Beloved, you and I can join in on this. That we can lift our voices together too, along with our persecuted Christian family around the world. And passionate, unified, corporate prayer now what's amazing, what I want to look at for the next few moments is the content of their prayer. Not just that they prayed, but how they prayed. And I think we can see at least four facets of the prayer. We see a reverence to God, we see a response of surrender, we see a specific request, and then we see the result of how God responded in powerfully answering their prayer. So first, their first aspect of prayer is reverence. Everyone say reverence. 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 Here's the reverence, they worship God, as sovereign creator. I love it, says so they lifted their voice together and together and they said to God, sovereign Lord, a declaration of who God is, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them what he's done, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant said by the Holy Spirit, remembers what God had said. So worshiping God for who he is, in this case a sovereign creator, fills our heart with courage and faith It reminds us that prayer is not about getting God to come down to accomplish our purposes, but to partner with Him to accomplish His purposes. It's all about being brought up to see things from His perspective, to remember that He is in control, has all power and authority. And then we remember what He's done, that we look back and we see how God has used something like persecution in the past, and we're refreshed with trust in His unchanging faithfulness. That He made the heavens and the earth and He's present in all that He has made. This truth can overcome and conquer our fear. And then we cling to what God has said. Note here how their prayer recognizes the dual authorship of Scripture. The mouth of your Father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit. That is, the writing in Scripture was the, a was the dual authorship, divine and human. Prayer is also dual participation, divine and human. This reality is empowered and fueled by God's word. And so note now how they pray scripture together. And how scripture gives language and fuels their prayer. So they go on to quote a scripture. It said that, that how they said that David, your servant David, said by the Holy Spirit. And they said, why did the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and his anointed. So what this is, if you look in your Bibles, maybe you have a little, little footnote there. They're, they're praying the Psalms. They're specifically quoting from Psalm 2. And if you were to go back into Psalm 2 and read its content, you would see that it's a it's one of the one of the titles called the Coronation Psalm. Uh, it's celebrating when a new king was crowned here, ultimately pointing to the Messiah. It's a messianic psalm. And it was a call, did two things. It was a call to allegiance to the new kingdom that was being established, and allegiance to the new king, but also it also would claim victory over all who would oppose. And those who, are, who, who rebel are ultimately doing so in vain. In other words, the psalm explains the who and why of persecution. It begins with declaring why, which is a huge question when it comes to persecution. It says that there is a rage, a hatred of God, a plotting to destroy and set themselves against God's chosen leader, a hatred towards God's people then. Persecution ultimately comes from the prideful lust of power. Persecution happens because there's a conflict of kingdoms here in this world kingdom of the world and the kingdom of christ but notice the persecution is said to be against the lord and his anointed jesus takes persecution personally why because it's his body as the head he knows and understands every single member every fiber of its being and because we are part of his body we are also to take persecution personally and so, when they're praying, the scripture they admonishes us to know scripture. The more we know scripture, the more we will be able to, to recognize who God is, what He has done, and in remembrance of what He said. So we know how to pray, we know how to respond. And notice that they didn't have Bibles and pews in front of them, where the world the word conveniently project on the screen. There's nothing wrong with that, but we so often just want to be spoon fed, and we don't actually take the the the, the time. To sit down and digest and to memorize and to meditate scripture. I wonder how biblically literate we all would be if after we locked this room we had dropped all copies of our scripture at the door and we could never return to them. How much scripture would we know? And I would say to the degree of what we not just know intellectually but know that we've internalized is to the degree in which we would live according to God's will and kingdom. So a recap, when we pray for the persecutor, we must begin with who God is, remembering what he's done and praying scripture on behalf of our suffering brothers and sisters in Christ. So that was a reverence. Next is response. Say response. Here's the response. They express surrender and trust to God's good plan. See how after praying scripture, they apply it to the immediate situation. Verse 27, now they say, For truly in this city, which is Jerusalem, They were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, that'd be the Lord's anointed, both Herod the king and Pontius Pilate the ruler, along with the Gentiles, which is the surrounding nations and the peoples of Israel, the Jewish leaders and the people. They basically are filling in Psalm 2 with their current context. And note their surrender and trust in God's plan. Because they've acknowledged and worshiped God as sovereign Lord and creator, to do, here's at verse 28, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. See, God was in control and had a plan for Jesus' suffering and death. The same is true for his church today. Once again, we see the church strongly believing his sovereignty and his perfect plan for his people, but note they did not allow their faith to diminish or relinquish human responsibility, for they were faithful to witness and pray. You see, prayer is not an escape from our responsibility. It's our response to God's ability. It's only when God's people overemphasize God's sovereignty or human responsibility that we get out of balance and we lose our power, we lose our direction. And says one commentator, put it this way: the sovereignty of God is not an abstract doctrine that we accept and defend. It is a living truth that we act upon and depend on for our every need. God's sovereignty is personal, and when we surrender and trust God's good plan, we take in the mirac- we take part in the miraculous way that He can work good from evil and bring glory from suffering. Now so that's reverence, response. Now we get to the request. Request. What would you say with me, request? What do you ask for in a time like this? They've asked for an unshakable boldness to proclaim Jesus. They said this in verse 29. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak the word with all boldness. So the request is twofold. Look upon their threats. That God sees, he knows all. He was intimately aware of their situation. He sees all the persecution that happens to his people, no matter where they are. And number two, that God would grant, that in his grace he would give, notice this, not protection, but power. Not safety, but strength. Not from fire from heaven to come down and destroy the enemy, but for supernatural ability to preach the word. And the next in verse 30 is not so much a continuation of their prayer, but their humble anticipation of what would accompany their bold preaching. Verse 29 reveals their dependence on God for them to do their part, proclaim God's word boldly. And then verse 30 declares their submission, yet anticipation for God to do what only He can do. He says this while you stretch out your hand to heal, and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your Holy Spirit, of your holy servant Jesus. And this is what got them into trouble in the first place. That when the layman from birth was begging outside the city gate, Peter and John were on the way to the prayer meeting. They met this man. He got healed by Jesus. And then a commotion arose. And then they were questioned about it. And Peter addresses the people. And he says, it's in Jesus Christ. It's in his name that he was healed. And it's only in Jesus Christ, in his name, that people are saved. And he says that he was filled with the Holy Spirit. And I love this. We finally get to the result. Everyone say Result god hears this this is this is the best part and so for those of you who are staying to the end you get to hear the best here it is response from god and the result shaking and filling shaking and filling of the holy spirit and a continue to continue to proclaim the word of god with boldness i love this i long for this i long for this to happen in chapel lord lord do it even now it says that when they prayed the place in which they gathered together, remember together because they lifted their voices to gather, was shaken. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. Prayer, shaking, filling, boldness, speaking. I believe God's response to their prayer renewed a fear of the Lord in their lives. Because, beloved, when you are shaken by the Holy Spirit, you will be unshaken by man. Notice that it says all were filled with the Spirit. In Acts 4, 8, just Peter was filled with the Spirit before he spoke boldly. But now this is going to happen and does happen with everyone. This is not a repeat of Pentecost, but an outcome of Pentecost That God's people would be continually refilled by the Holy Spirit. Why do we need to continue to be refilled by the Holy Spirit? Let's just be honest, because we're leaky. (laughs) And we so often have mixture and distraction that we need a continual filling of the Holy Spirit for us to pray and for us to act according to God's plan in response to persecution. And I want to. I love this. It says that they continue. The result, they continue to speak the word of God with boldness. And here's the thing: we can be encouraged, and that we can encourage our brothers and sisters around the globe that the gospel is unstoppable. And here's the thing: our prayers for them will not only strengthen them, but will also strengthen and prepare us for when, not if, persecution comes to us. And I don't mean to be an alarmist. But I believe right now there is a current drift away from Christianity, and there's a future sift that's going to happen. Because one of the things that persecution does is it purifies God's people. And in that purity, we walk in a renewed power. Would you pray with me? Father in heaven, I thank you for this time. I thank you for these students. Thank you for the power of your word. Father, we pray that you would awaken our eyes to see, our hearts to feel, and our lives to live after the pattern of what we've seen here in this text. Help us to walk in renewed commitment to you. Fill us now with the Holy Spirit. Would you shake us and renew a fear of the Lord for us to walk in boldness? And for us to walk in prayer today. May every time when we look at our phone remember that perhaps at that moment there's a brother or sister, a family member in the faith that is being martyred because of their identification with Jesus Christ. And that we would reach out and cry out and pray. We love you. We surrender to you. We thank you for this time and this week. In Jesus' name we pray. And all God's people said? Amen.